0: On this episode of the Surviving Outside Sales Podcast, I sit down with David Ledge Ledgerwood, the managing partner of Ad One Zero, and the host of the Leaders of B2B podcast. We discuss all things in software sales and sales in general, and talk a little bit of podcasting. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Stick around until the end. As always, please like, share, comment, download, rate five stars if you can, we really do appreciate it. Now, on with the show, intro. The Surviving Outside Sales Podcast, hosted by Mike O'Kelly, presented by Rhythm AI. The goal is to get in, dominate, then get out. Surviving Outside Sales, on with the show. Welcome to the Surviving Outside Sales Podcast. I'm very excited for our guest today, Mr. David Ledgerwood, also known as Ledge. How are you doing today, Ledge?
1: Very good, Mike. Thank you for having me.
0: So I have to read out your well-crafted intro. <laughs> I think this is fantastic. Whoever whoever did this, I, know. I, I want I want them to do it for me. So, Ledge is a managing partner at Ad One Zero, where his team provides lead to close sales execution for tech-enabled B two B service companies ready to leap from six to seven digits of revenue. Throughout his career, Ledge has closed over forty million, with an average deal. Size in excess of 150,000. He has deep rooted expertise in selling software and services, has helped several companies grow from zero to five million in sales. He also hosts, co hosts the leader of B2B podcast, where he's interviewed dozens of founders and businesses business leaders across B2B spectrum. He's a 13 time founder and a proud father of five. Wow. What an introduction.
1: I'm blushing, Mike. I'm blushing. <laughs> well, uh, we have a good copywriter around here, I guess, you know, so. That,
0: that's a lot to chop up uh, to the, <laughs> the, the, the children of five, how busy you are, but yeah. where, where do you want to go? I know beforehand we were talking, if you're listening right now, we've got the three avenues of surviving outside sales. And, and your propensity is the getting out part, the, you know, leaving sales and starting something new. Do you want to get into that or do you want to add anything else to that? Yeah, you know, I,
1: mm-hmm. I I no, I read your, you know, thing and I really resonated with that And far as far as the mission of, you know, when, what do you do next, right? You know, I'm tired of, of maybe, you know, sort of being a sales professional under somebody's umbrella or, you know, I have... I've experienced like salespeople get a lot of feedback from the market, and and if you're an expert in a particular industry, like you're talking to all the prospects, right, about that thing. Whoever it is that you work for, you're getting all the feedback. So what are you doing? Like you're the person that is able to collect all of the hey, you know, there's a problem here that's not being addressed, and maybe I should be the one that makes the product or the startup or the service that comes in and provides that. So that was my experience in sales is that, you know, I would, I would just have all these conversations in, in a lot more density and you would, you would be able to then intuit, wow, like if I'm an entrepreneurial type person, here's a thing that that is apparently not being addressed. And my current company doesn't do it and nobody does it because every prospect, after you do a thousand calls, you hear the same thing. A lot of times, the the siren song of you know I should go do this myself can pop up, and I, and that's exactly what happened to me. So in my story, it was, you know, I I found in my own role running sales for essentially for startups, you know, that I was I was often called upon to be the first guy in the room who was focused on really building a revenue function and a sales function, and those were typically startups that were service companies B two B, and they would often get in this spot where the founder could, you know, muscle it up to 300 to 500 annual sales. And there was clearly like, there was hunger there. You know, there was a thing that would, would work. It wasn't as if we're just like throwing spaghetti against the wall. Like we're delivering enough stuff that just like, this is a thing that should happen. But what you find there is like each order of magnitude and the development of a business requires a lot more sort of what got you here won't get you there. And I was the guy that was supposed to go, well, how do we go from 500 to 5 million mm. and what, what all has to happen there? And after after several times of that happening and successfully doing that, I became aware of trying because of trying to buy help that there just wasn't anybody that was out there closing deals for other companies and, and allowing the founder to just go be a CEO and to be a practitioner and to scale and hire people that actually like you got into business most of the time because you wanted to do the thing, not because you wanted to sell the thing. So somebody else could do it and take all the money. Mm-hmm. And and I saw that over and over again. And I wanted to know why, why can't you hire people to close deals for you? You can hire people to coach you and build the sales process and help you hire and outsource your SDR and your lead gen. And like, so it went on and on and on. But I'm like, literally none of these things delivers you revenue <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I wanted to do that and I couldn't understand why that didn't exist so we went and built it and and that's that's where we are now and now I know why people don't do that because it's hard but we figured out <laughs> oh yeah and you know we figured out how to how to do that so that we can help people really scale up those those businesses without them having to sit in sales and traditionally, Founders are told that the last thing you should give up is sales. And I, I want to be the contrarian and say, no, it's the first thing that you should give up. It's just you haven't been given the tools to do that.
0: It's, it's so true. That's that's what we've heard You know, at Rhythm was the advice we were given was when you're starting up, you should be the one to sell it because you know it better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of other things that have to happen in order to grow a company than just sales. Now, I say that with the caveat, sales cures all ills. Yes. And, but you also have a lot of tasks to do when you start your own business. And that's kind of what we thought was, Hey, nobody's doing this. We can't find this. Let's create it. And yeah. then there's that aha moment. Where we're like, okay, we've now dipped our toe into an, an avenue that we're not familiar with. Neither myself or my other sales partner had ever sold software. And it, there's a, there's a technical competence and an understanding and ecosystem we were completely unaware of. And You know, so at first fun when
1: you find out, yeah, I tell you what,
0: (laughs) it hits you across the face like a two by four. So, but I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. I mean, necessity is the mother of all invention and that, that there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening right now and they're thinking I could do X, Y, or Z. And what advice would you give them? Because it is kind of jumping off the ledge. And the phrase we've heard when it comes to software is jumping off the cliff and building the plane on the way down. What advice would you give to somebody, since you've done it so many times and successfully done it, what advice would you give people who are listening right now and want to jump off that cliff?
1: I have dove in into this question a bunch of times, you know, so I, I've had my own experiences, but, you know, like sample size of one, like I like to ask the question too. And so when I, I host a lot of B2B founders who are, are typically going to be software people or service people on leaders of B2B. And I ask a question just like this. And so some hundreds of, of, you know, iterations later, I think what you, what you really find out is like, cause I always want to dig in and I ask people like, okay, I know that you're now successful and you're doing, you know, 10 million, hundred million ARR, but like yeah. at some point you were the guy or gal who walked out of a thing that was paying you money and had you know the proverbial notepad sitting at your kitchen table, and like what happened from that? So like where where were you like? And people people often talk, well, I side hustle, but, but you don't hear that as much. Like you think that might be what it was. What it what it really was? More than anything is like when I find the successful people, they spent literally like a year of dedicated market study and working on this thing before taking the leap. And I think it's so easy to convince yourself that, you know, well, we're solving a problem that needs to be solved. That very well could be true, but it doesn't answer the question of like, does does the customer want to consume it that way? And who's going to pay? Because like you can solve all kinds of problems, but it doesn't mean somebody has a, a budget or a mandate or an interest in solving that problem for somebody else with their money. Mm-hmm. And so, almost universally, I think it's that people misunderstand how long you should study and think about and build out the stuff. And if you read lean startup type of methodologies, you'll find the you know customer discovery interviews sure. That's one way to do it. But I mean, ultimately you need to have a lot of conversations and you, and you need to study. And there's so much now. I mean, like you look a similar vintage to me. Like when I, there wasn't even such a thing as startups and entrepreneurship. When I came out of college, you know, it was just like, whatever, you just didn't do that. You went and got a job and there was no internet to go search. now there's an article or a video about everything. Now, the other side of that is that you can consume far too much and everybody has an opinion and you know you need to learn to be vastly better a sorter of information mm-hmm. you know to filter out that crap so the first thing you learn like when you're doing a startup is everybody has an opinion but nobody has any money so <laughs> you know and and one of the i love the the phrase somebody told me once it was like you know if you, if you if you want money ask for advice and if you want advice ask for money so it is easy to go out there. And and if you can have a qualified conversation for like, in your case, it would have been, you know, okay, a a major enterprise, like we know we're going to try to put this software in play for a VP of sales at a, you know, a $2 billion company or something like, I got to go talk to somebody like that and say, what are the major buying considerations for this? And like you said, the the first thing they're going to say is like, well, how's it going to integrate with the rest of my stack? And, well, all right. What does that mean? You know, like what yeah. what exactly must happen there? And the next part of that conversation would be like, look, if you don't integrate with Salesforce or maybe HubSpot, you know, we don't even want to talk to you because this is a huge pain in the ass. Right. Yeah. So.
0: I I think and 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 to add kind of my personal experience, I think that when we started Rhythm, there was a little bit of ego. I know I had an ego, where I was like, I can sell this. I believe in this. I can sell this. And like you said, I didn't know what a tech stack was. When somebody asked me that, like, what, you know, where does this fall in the stack? And I'm like, <sighs> stack. And they're well, like, it's, it, it's funny you mentioned that because yeah. I want
1: stacks. I want money, right? That's what we're
0: talking about. <laughs> exactly. Wait, are you saying you want a three-year contract or a five-year contract? That's the stack I'm thinking of. And right. I had, there was ego and that's, we didn't fail. It wasn't ultimate failure because I think a failure is when you don't take a lesson from a misstep. And you do the same thing twice, which we haven't, but I I did feel like it was, we went in guns blazing, got a lot of demos and we didn't, we are egotistical, or at least I will, I'll take the brunt of this. The ego was, well, we can sell it. We just have to, you know, tell them about it. And like you mentioned, there was no, we had talked to customers, but we didn't talk to customers at at the senior level. We talked to a lot of users and we had great beta. And so even with our technology that we still believe is fantastic. It was, you know, we got, a, I got my doors blown off and I was just thoroughly unprepared. And so Didn't pack up shop, didn't shut down, just said, All right, we have to to retool. We have to have a different go to market strategy. And if you're listening right now and you don't understand some of these terms, that's okay. We'll talk about them more in future episodes. It's okay. I didn't know them when I first started. And there was a bunch of acronyms being thrown around, and you have to learn new terminology, new language. And what I didn't do is I didn't do the same thing that we preach about in the podcast which is I was getting into a new industry and yet I wasn't becoming a student of that industry. And so yeah. I can tell you that right now, that's the biggest thing you need to do. Yeah. That's exactly so,
1: what I was saying. Like yep. I, I talk to people successfully making products and businesses It's they, they really dove into that. And, you know, I, I can fake it pretty good on the first call to for pretty much selling anything because those mm-hmm. are, those are your high level basic, you know, whatever. But when people start throwing acronyms at you that you don't know, That's the first thing that you should pay attention to. Like, and then you know, keep that Google window open. Like, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Yeah. I saw I had like a Mm -hmm. cybersecurity project, you know, client that I was working on. And man, they threw out a lot of stuff. So, you know, I'm literally I'm live on the call. I'm Googling, you know, CPAT cybersecurity meaning. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, we can do that. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so screwed. You know, so I think you learn that there are some universal truths and about 80% of your stuff is applicable no matter what, but the 20 is going to crush you if you aren't paying attention. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and, and it doesn't matter what you're selling, really selling is a is a change. And it's it's, a, it's you're pulling somebody into a new state. Yeah. And it's really hard to do that if you're not speaking the same language. Just think if you go to a foreign country and you don't speak the same language as the person, do you think there's going to be some frustration? Do you think they're, hopefully don't say anything that gets a fight, but I think you know what I mean, that yeah. And, and that was really, I mean, first start out, learn the terminology and take it slow. So let me, ask, let me ask you a question. If somebody, in your opinion, if somebody is changing into a new industry, how long should they study the industry they're going to go into before they make that leap? Or how long do you think it's going to take them to get into that industry? And when do they know it's time? Surviving Outside Sales Podcast is brought to you by Rhythm AI. If you are in outside sales, check out RhythmAI.com. That's R-I-T-H-M-A-I.com. The sales enablement tool that will help outside sales teams build their best sales days every day. Rhythm, prospecting, targeting, and routing simplified. Everything an outside sales team needs, nothing it doesn't. Try for $1 for the first month today. That's RhythmAI.com. Now back to the show.
1: It's, it's hard to say, you know, like, so time-wise, like, are we doing this, you know, as sort of, is this my side interest? Like I ultimately decide I'm maybe right now I'm selling, you know, industrial equipment, but I know I want to get into tech sales or mm-hmm. something like that. Like, what do I do? You know? And so I think you need to join some, there's all kinds of, you know, sort of online communities and like endless sort of stuff that you can do. And I mean, the first thing I would do is like how to transition to tech sales in Google and read, you know, 200 blogs about it. And then you sort of like, just keep your own rolling set of notes. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of podcasts about stuff. So time-wise, I think it's like, how much can you immerse in that? Because if I were to then, if I were to say like, I'm going to quit, I have runway where I'm going to spend the next six months becoming expert in this thing and learning exactly how to translate my existing skill set and vocabulary, into that new space, maybe you do that. There's also a gamble on that, like where, you know, like if you're starting your own business, cool, you can go do whatever you want. If you're starting trying to get a job there, they're always going to look at your previous experience and how do you credibly, you know, spread that gap. So one thing might be, you know, if if you can find anybody in your network that would sort of take you on as a consulting customer, you know, and, and just sort of help you grow into that role, you know, in some way. So I don't know. You know, I, I would hesitate to tell anybody like, you know, not to be at least like six months prepared for, you know, something like that. And and particularly if you're trying to solve a problem that if your answer is nobody's doing this or nobody has this thing now, like that's the sort of, that's the lie every entrepreneur tells themselves at at Mm -hmm. first, you know, where it's like, well, it could be that you're brilliant and you have a thing that's different. <laughs> it's also more likely that people have tried to do the thing you're doing and it's too expensive, or there's some like major blocker, or there's a competitive moat. And the reason nobody's doing it now is because they're out of business. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't so you can't you can't call them anymore <laughs> to find out <laughs> that they
0: Yeah, their website know, doesn't work.
1: <laughs> still nobody's doing it, you know, and and I'm not going to say there aren't like original ideas or approaches now, but uh, there's a lot of saturation out there. So the first thing I would always assume is that someone is doing or attempting to do what you think is a good idea. And the question is, how are they approaching it and are they successful?
0: Yeah, I'll give you a good example. So when we started Rhythm, so it's a sales optimization tool. It kind of gets lumped into the sales enablement platform, but it really isn't because that's not really what we're doing. We are enabling them to do more sales, but it's actually working on the daily basis and we did exactly what you said. Oh, nobody's doing this. And then we still believe nobody's doing it because from a standpoint of, of technali- technicality, right? there are people within the group. Like there's, you know, you, you can search mapping technology for outside sales. Sure. And there's, we realize now there's a dozen or so companies, but we've, we've looked into our competitors. I mean, we competitor shop and we look at what they're doing and we believe fundamentally the backbone of their hypothesis is not is not accurate. Right. And we believe one of the reasons why is because you've got two outside sales pros, two decades each, building the, the guts, the ideas. We're not actually building the engineering. We're telling the engineers, this is what it needs to do and this is why. Whereas, you know, we, we know the background of all the other companies that kind of doing the same things. And it's usually they come from, you know, either... Inside sales, or they come from something that doesn't quite understand the challenges of being in a car and driving around. And yeah. you know, being on an interstate where there's an accident. What do you do? You're gonna be late for your appointment. You have to reschedule. You now have a block of an hour and a half of your day. What do you do? Do you just sit around and do nothing? Or do you try to, you know, pivot and try to add some calls? And so I think just going through those challenges, but the yeah. mistake we made was that nobody is doing anything like this. And we said that. And I, I, I realized now I did it more than anybody else. I was like, we're innovating, we're doing this X, Y, and Z. And I realized it could have been a flaw because people might kind of roll their eyes, like heard this a thousand times, especially in the C-suite. And so you know, if you're listening right now and you're in sales, just realize no matter what you say, the C-suite, the people you're selling to have probably heard it a thousand times. And so- <laughs> ditch the cliches, ditch the slogans and just be real and have a real honest conversation with somebody. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't know something, it's okay. But I mean, anything to add on that ledge?
1: Yeah, I I think it's good to have novel approaches, but you cannot require like, it's sort of like address the little piece of the market and solve a little problem that integrates well with what they're already invested in. Mm -hmm. because you you can't expect people to change everything you can you can try to be the best point solution at the start to make some piece of that better but they're not going to change over to you and think about it if you were the one paying the bill for Mm -hmm. like an enterprise software the translation for nobody else is doing this is well i don't want to be the first one yeah why the hell would I finance it? You know, go get somebody else to use your thing. You know, like why, why should I be your beta customer? Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, yeah. You have to be careful with like, it's, we get enamored and entrepreneurs do this all the time. I do it all the time. You know, you get enamored with the beauty of your own thing, mm-hmm. but you aren't really thinking about like how somebody else is consuming that message. And it ends up sounding kind of tone deaf. Like, you know, it's like, great. So you went in a closet and you built the thing that everybody thinks you you think everybody else needs, but you know, that's not consultative in nature. You know, you're trying to solve, you have to solve their problem, not the problem you think they have, or you can't force them to solve that problem. Even if they do have it in the method or the approach that that you have. And I, I think it's so easy to, to get pigeonholed in that way. Absolutely.
0: And I'll make a statement and I have a question. The statement is, I think that's one of the things that we did. So we kind of took us, we took a step back and we took a big, you know, broad view of the market and we kind of said, all right, let's not. And this is, I did this, not so much my partners, but I said, all right, let's, let's not, let's not force things on people and let's not, let's start listening. So let's start having conversations. And again, what a sales is just having a bunch of conversations with people. and so. What I wanted to ask you in the question is, when you are trying to change somebody's behavior, especially in, in the software world or just in general when you're starting out, is it better to try to make small incremental changes or do you think having them envision an entirely new future is the way to go? Small or big?
1: I think think there's maybe 80% small with a little bit of big sprinkled on. Like you you, you can paint the future state. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's good, you know, and to say like, but it really needs to be like facilitate their future state, not tell them how great things are going to be if they use your product. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because remember you exist in a, a landscape of like everybody says that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if, if I was advising somebody who was going to market First, with a, a product or, or solution, you know, focus on getting that reference case where you can just just bust your butt for a couple of years, so that you can go, okay, it actually worked the way I said, or better. I have extremely good metrics to show. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what it was when we started, and this is what it was when we left, and up and to the right. You know, and, and if you can show that on a bunch of different metrics that is what was critical for, for our business. And you can say like, you know, I I could walk in all the, how many people could walk in any business and be like, I can sell your thing, you know? Well, we did. And then, you know, so now, and I got the clients to say, you know, they did what they said they were going to do. They added one zero. (laughs) And I mean, that, that was important because I I thought we could do that, you know, (laughs) and I, I was pretty confident that we could do that, but until you actually do it, no one cares you know, so then it starts to turn over the conversation, you know, over the course of time. So small incremental measurable improvement is always gonna help your business better. And I would argue that it's probably easier to sell. I'd also say that I firmly believe this in B2B sales. There's, there's only two value props mm-hmm. in the world. This is, I make you more revenue or I make you more profit, which is to say, I cut your expenses. of all the solutions out there are going, I can cut your expenses, which means I can make you more profit. Mm -hmm. It's a thousand times easier if you can figure out how to be that 10% that makes someone more revenue. Mm. And if you can find any way to position your thing on the revenue side, we will make you more revenue. It is so much easier to sell. Mm. And just, just give away this idea of like, we make you more efficient. Cut co- we cut cut costs. We cut like, everybody says that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you can link directly to your thing and say like, you will make more top line. That's always better. Yeah. <laughs> always better. Go ahead and be inefficient on the bottom of the line because I can't help you with that. But I can tell you that more money going into the machine. You said it earlier, like sales cures everything. hmm Run a crappy business if you need to. But if I made you more sales, like I'm the one that's not going to get cut.
0: <laughs> so. yeah I no, think I, it, I, it's it's talking about you know instead of uh, focusing on pennies and nickels, you're focusing on dollars. And I, I mean yeah. i've seen I've seen it in businesses I've called on. not necessarily, I was trying to sell them like services on how to sell more, but I've called on businesses, and the focus was pinching pennies. And that's not how you become wealthy and that's not how you become profitable. So, You know, you talked about the 10% and that is a great visual. I think everybody, you know, can think of, you know, the top 10% and they think of, let's talk about how driving revenue. So is that your, you know, kind of talk about your sales philosophy because you've been very successful and wildly successful. So I know you're not just shooting from the hip. And so on our podcast, we always preach about having process, system. Yeah, yeah. What what is your process or your system that is just your go-to? This is how I build up. This is how I believe in my sales process. Kind of discuss your process and and how your sales thoughts go. Sure. Yeah.
1: I think the biggest piece that that we develop, because at first, you know, it's just sort of our own own need, right? Like, how do you keep track of if I do a thousand calls over the course of a year? I've really got a lot of intelligence there, but it doesn't turn into anything because it's just a bunch of recordings mm-hmm. and reps take crappy notes. You know, so <laughs> what could I do with that? And and what we figured out was, well, it's expensive, but we actually have an analyst go back to every recording and write down every need, objection or positive reaction or question from every call. So we actually tag every single thing and write them all down and then normalize the data so that we can say like literally 27% of all the people that we ever got on a call wanna know this. Now, what do we do with that? Drive it to the top of the funnel first as content prompts Mm -hmm. so we can say like, well, listen, like just answer this stuff and we're gonna save rep time and it's also going to filter out the people that should have never got to the call in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the process is you got to drive up call to close ratio, and you got to drive up average contract value. And that points us in the place of like, well, if we just do the thing people actually want to buy and arrange our packages in a way that makes that easy and frictionless to buy, now we can focus on that relationship building and sales. So that was the looping kind of experience of what really, really mattered to us. And I think that that positioning of like, it's not that I'm making your thing different. I'm figuring out how to make your thing. If I, any way I can find out or figure out a way to make your thing sound like it makes more money and focus on that piece. Mm -hmm. Tell me anyone you ever talked to that wasn't like, yeah, I wish I had more sales. (laughs) Like, like nobody wakes up looking at the ceiling in the middle of the night in any business context that doesn't want to grow sales. Like revenue, revenue is everything, and you know. Mm-hmm. So I just said, like, I got a vastly better chance of winning here if I can make people more money than if I talk about like cutting more costs for them. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Now, some things you just can't do that, but it'd be better to position it that way. So, a big part of our philosophy is is about packaging, mm-hmm. which is just to say that you know I I am a firm believer in the three column, you know, sort of whatever, silver, gold, platinum with better names. And you probably want to drive people to gold because like people like being right down the middle with a good recommended valuable solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, 80% of what you do ought to be distributed across that. And you should know this because you should analyze what you actually do for customers. Mm. And we'll go through the whole list. Show me everything you do for a customer and we'll phrase those properly as like, maybe they don't care about how many seats they have. They actually care about some kind of value driver.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what you often find is those grids are just all feature, 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 but they're not benefit driven, you first kind of statements. Like this is what will happen for your business. This is the win. Mm-hmm. And so once we reorganize all of the, the offer that way in a, a better you first sort of sales driven value language, Then we know 80% of what they do is already there, 80% of what the prospect wants. And we know what the prospect wants because we're analyzing and we're actually Mm -hmm. listening to them instead of just imagining on a whiteboard, here's what we think our customer is supposed to want. No, this is what they really want.
0: So you go from marketing to sales analytics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it just really has to all go yeah. together, and that's where I started to think about like this is a revenue function. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, this is just about like every piece of this thing that makes us more money, and and you you can't avoid it. Like revenue becomes my original metaphor was like you know if you, you see the carousel at the amusement park and the horses going round and round and pretty lights and you know all this stuff, but like what really makes that go is the greasy weird thing that's hidden in that pretty cylinder in the middle. And I think that that's the revenue function. Like this is, this is blocking and tackling, you know, brutality. And there's all kinds of software trying to go, oh, we can analyze sentiment and we can analyze, you know, pick out when the customer has a question and all that stuff. Ultimately, it doesn't beat the human analyst, Mm -hmm. you know, where we can. It's a lot of damn work, but we can make that more valuable.
0: Well, and one of the ways to lower cost is to drive revenue. Because then your unit cost per, you know, your cloud cost is lower if you have more revenue and you know you your cost your, your your cost per acquisition goes down. So yeah, you revenue, revenue, revenue. That's what it's all about. So you're a 13-time founder. I don't know if you have anything on the horizon, or when do you start looking for new opportunities? Because you've you've had so many, you've worked with so many companies and been successful. So Personally for you, when do you kind of, you get an itch? Like, you know what? I want to try this. Or does something come across your radar? Or are you very methodical? You've thought about it for a while and then you say, all right, I'm going to go over here. What's your thought process?
1: I used to be very poor at focusing and was advised to focus and still refuse to focus. And so <laughs> now, now I I am doing one thing at a time. And when when that thing exposes or our business, exposes us to, you know, opportunities and we, we think about them and decide, you know, the opportunity cost of doing that would be X. And should we, you know, think about that? Should we spin up a side team? Should we, mm-hmm. you know, is this actually a thing we want to get involved with, or should we just do the thing we're doing? Cause it throws off a bunch of cash and we want to go to our kids' soccer game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am not, I'm not 29 years old, you know, hustling, working 60 hours a week anymore. And yeah, yeah. so life values change, you know, like, will I want to always keep doing new things? Yeah. But, Mm -hmm. uh, and I like doing services businesses, which are essentially consulting businesses in different formats because they expose you to stuff where, you know, ultimately maybe we, you know, we've had, every client has said like, Hey, can we just buy you like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, no, you can't, but let's talk about ways that we could, you know, develop some, um, some value together, you know, yeah. and, and I think that that that's a catbird seat, you know, it's a so I would encourage if people, if you don't know what you're doing, you, you or don't want what you want to do, the best thing you could do is spin up a side consulting company. That's just sort of always there and run your projects through it, whatever you get paid for, because it can really be the space between. What you're doing now and your your sort of paid way to you know generate opportunities for just discovery of what you might do later.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's fantastic advice. So, Ledge, I really do appreciate you being on the show. How can the listeners reach out to you and connect with you? What's the best way?
1: If you're interested in what we do, it's one zero. That's add numeral one z e r o dot c o. And you can look up David Ledge Ledgerwood on um, LinkedIn. And I'm always on there, post a lot of videos. Check out leadersofb2b.com for the podcast. And uh, Mike, really appreciate the time. It's been a great conversation.
0: Yeah. Thank you. All the, all the links are going to be in the show notes. So check those out and thank you so much. Everybody has reached out to the show and reached out to the guest. Please reach out to ledge. He's an, he's a resource and has decided to join the podcast because he wants to help you, the listeners. So thank you so much as always, please like share, download the show, give it five stars on Apple and Spotify. It really helps expose it to a much bigger audience. And you can also reach out to the show, Mike at surviving outside sales. You can reach out to me directly, Mike at Surviving Outside Sales. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Surviving Outside Sales podcast. You all have a great day. Thank you, Ledge.
1: Thank you.